Welcome to the Clueless at the Work podcast, where we talk through a framework for being successful in your job. My name is Anthony Garone, and I'll be hosting this show with some friends who are experts in helping people grow. The content is based on my book, Clueless at the Work, Advice from a Corporate Tyrant, which is published by Stairway Press. You can find out more at cluelessatthework.com. Welcome back to the Clueless at the Work podcast. I have two very close friends with me uh, in, here in the studio. One is Andy Fry, who was in the first three episodes of the podcast. So welcome back, Andy. Good morning. And then we have Matthew P. Rausch with us. Matthew, say hello. Hello. <laughs> he is the director of human resources, or are you vice president now? It's the same thing. <laughs> <laughs> Matt runs Human Resources at Melt Media. And um, as you may have already realized, most of this podcast has featured people from Melt Media. Um, we will have some more variety, but there are so many good people at Melt Media that we just have to have them all on. <laughs> so thanks for joining us, Matt and Andy. Thank you for having us. Last time... Andy was here on the podcast. We kind of wrapped up the showing up to work on time piece with reliable transportation, um, having mental blocks that stand in the way of you showing up on time. And uh, we're going to move a little bit further in the book into the do well section. This is about actually getting good at your job. Some of us know something about that. (laughs) Two of you. Two of us. Maybe one. It's up to the lead, the re- listener to determine which two of us. <laughs> and here we go. And here we go. Right. So, um, yeah, what, what does it mean to you, Matt, to do well at a job? I think when you're looking out for the effect of yourself on others at work. So... There's folks that you work with that uh, have an intention of uh, increasing in stature. <laughs> <laughs> that was the sound <laughs> That's my stature increase. Yeah, my physical, my physical quotes. <laughs> um, but I think if you are getting better at your job, you're actually learning more about the way to interact with others at work. I think that folks miss out on the um, cultural piece and the relationships at work more often than the skill set of doing their job, which is the responsibility list. So you get a responsibility list and a job description, and uh, you apply to that job, you interview for the, that skill set, and then you start at, a, at an employer, and how you get along with coworkers, how you interact and communicate, uh, how you share information rather than house information, um, I think that's a piece that's missed a lot. And the people that are most successful without driving others away, without stepping on others, um, are going to be more happy. And they're going to have more positive relationships at work rather than come home and be exhausted. Right. And we do cover a lot of that stuff in the later parts of the book because it's like, I think it's too hard to get started with. You know, like you hire someone, they're 18, 19, or 22 right out of college they might be good at making friends, but developing real relationships as coworkers, 
I feel like that's something that takes a few years for most people to develop. Do you agree or disagree? Um, I think it's more, it, it absolutely is experience because it's like you're dating initially and you have a facade. You have a show. This is what I want them to see me as, as opposed to this is how I am. And this is how I interact at work. And this is how I build relationships. If there was more genuine behavior, uh, I think it would provide quicker feedback as well. If I were able to be just honest and forthright about when I'm embarrassed, um, when I feel insecure, um, when I'm feeling uh, wound up about something, I think if I was able to communicate that in a more honest way at work, um, then people would see the genuine side of it. There's, the, there's two sides of, of being vulnerable or being genuine at work. And one is that one comes before the other. It's like a chicken and the egg. But it's not. It's not you build trust and then you're vulnerable. You have to be vulnerable to build the trust. And I think that's the piece at work that uh, people forget. When they start on a job, they want to impress um, in the skill set as opposed to uh, this is who I am as a person and this is what I can do. Do you think it comes more natural to be good at the responsibilities and the skills required for the job before being vulnerable? Like, do you think in order to kind of prove yourself, you might resort to that first? I think that the natural state in especially corporate environments would be yes, that you would need to perform, that I would need to create 100 widgets a day before I'm able to... um, before I'm able to actually become a person. Mm. Um, that isn't the way it has to be, but that is the way it is in a lot of places. What we, I'm going to throw in a, a little thing from Melt Media, because what we're trying to do is help people be honest and forthright, and that's okay. And then the other side of that is you have to help the people who have been there a while, who have experience, um, create an environment where it is okay, where there's not ridicule or um, discipline for failing. If you don't know how to do something or you don't know how to do it well, either practice at it and get some guidance from people who know how to do it um, or tell them, tell them that I, this isn't the thing I'm best at, but this is the way I'm going to do it and see if they let you fail. They should, depending on the situation, but it's, uh, it's more about it's more about letting them know where you think you need guidance. Because most companies um, that I've worked at wouldn't allow you to fail. If you can't create the 100 widgets that you said you could create in this environment that they've never been in before, then you would be disciplined. As opposed to, okay, I started here, we've hired you because um, we like you, not because we know you can do the job. There's no way to prove that you can do a job before you start. Um, there's a lot of theories on you know, what questions you can ask in interviews and uh, personality tests and things like that. But truly, each person is individual, and if they are able to learn the environment first, that's what we usually have to do. We have to slow people down to say, I don't expect you to be an expert. You don't need to impress me. I've already hired you. Take three or four months. There's a learning curve. Take your time. Let us know what you don't know. We'll get you the support you need. So speaking of doing what you don't know what is your and you've got how long have you been a professional 65 years (laughs) professionals in air quotes by the way (laughs) 
Now, how long have you been working in, uh, you know, a corporate or professional environment? 1991. Okay. So that's like 30. Do the math. Wait. We're all trying to do 20, the math. 29 years. years. Yeah. It's almost 29. Yes. Thank yeah. you, Matthew. You're welcome. I like to round up. <laughs> <laughs> so um, can you tell any stories of when you were younger, the things that you saw that you were doing that make you realize the path you're on now is so much more informed and experienced. Like, do you have any learning stories about what you're talking about from your own experience? So I can tell you a great learning experience from the first job I had. So I graduated in the middle of a recession um, in 1991. um, And I graduated on a Sunday. And on that Monday, I started at a bank. And in bank, in the bank um, environment, which is a very conservative uh, West Michigan bank, I started in collections. And the first day on the job, my boss, who was 27, um, said, here's, of course, we didn't have computers. So they handed me a card that said, here's the person's name. Here's the car that, that they're late on their payments. This is their phone number. He dialed the number, handed me the phone, said, ask him for this payment. Um, and it wasn't about, it, this is a very positive experience because it wasn't about, um, uh, how well I did it. He wanted me to be under the gun. He wanted me to feel crappy. He wanted me to fe- be able to recover from that. Mm. And I took the phone from him and my hand was like physically shaking. <laughs> um, and I, uh, stumbled and, um, wasn't successful, um, but he said, this is what you're going to do a hundred times a day. You're going to pick up the phone and you're going to ask people for money. So you need to get used to it. And it built a ton of character on uh, tact, um, uh, treating people with respect. So it was a great first experience. Um, then as I got into the banking world and spent a couple years there, then you started to get into the corporate things of um, if you aren't showing yourself as someone who's... Um, recognized by the CEO or um, being on the special teams that are creating these special projects that it was your, that was your worth. Your worth wasn't uh, you. Your worth was your, your politics. Yes, your politics. It's not so much even contribution as politics. So it was a great experience initially to have something positive and understand I could make it through something as opposed to um, him ridiculing me or, or thinking, why the hell did we hire this guy? Um, because I was, I was also replacing somebody who had been there for 30 or 40 years. It's, his name was Bob Pope. Bob Pope had retired. Mm-hmm. Um, I loved him in the USO. <laughs> I was waiting, waiting for a Bob dad Pope. joke there. <laughs> Can't help it. I think he was that old, too. <laughs> so um, it was a very positive experience to be uh, put on the spot and being able to fail, being expected to fail, actually. Because that went away quickly. And for the next 20 years, I don't think I experienced that again mm. <laughs> in all the corporate environments that I was in. I'm going to adjust your microphone. These are very, very directional. Speak into the mic like that. Right into it. That's my... Uh... Edit sound wave. Oh, Q. With the clicker. With the clicker. Yeah. Andy, do you have any stories from earlier in your career 
when you were probably just getting started and you weren't doing well? Hmm. I think I said this in one of the other episodes, like uh, it's probably easier to, oh, there, there's so many. Um, well, there were, let's see, a, a standout one. I th- well, okay, so the, I think I said it earlier, but the seven habits, um, that was a turning point for my career. So up to that point, uh, I had worked, when I started, okay, so right out of college was 90, early 90s, 90, 91, whatever it was. And you had to, at that time anyways, in, in IT, I'd have a degree to get a job anywhere. I applied all over the place and I didn't have the degree because I bombed out early to get certifications and do, you know, do my networking, uh, my network certifications and all that. And so my struggle was I, I, I had to make something of that mess for, you know, the instant gratification of not having to go to school at 7am, you know, uh, to go to a job full time, make the money, get the certifications. The uh, payout, the the you know the problem with that was that I didn't have the degree, so I had to for for years at least this is how I how I experienced it was that I had to make my way and uh, and I knew I was impatient. I knew that for, through school, even from when I was a kid, I knew I was super impatient. I just wanted to jump in and do it. Um, I wanted someone to show me real fast so I could just take off and run with it. Uh, but then also, uh, I was painfully aware of the fact that once I finished a challenge and it wasn't challenging anymore, it was boring. <laughs> and so I had, I had all that stuff going against me. Um, and I think finally after I, I may have run into the seven habits around 90, mid nineties, late nineties, probably. And uh, I read that book and then all of a sudden I realized all the things I'd been doing, all the things I'd been doing to not, not completely intentionally, just not paying attention really. And that was a major pivot point. I tell the story all the time about when the seven habits just uh, upended my view of things, the way I had been, uh, the things I'd been doing. And, um, that was when I started to really, uh, pay more attention to, to the effect I had on the people around me. Like Matt was saying about being at work, the effect I have on people around me, the things that, um, the, the things that, uh, I put in motion, the things that I stop from moving, you know, the, uh, showing up on time, being organized, all those things. Um, but yeah, I, th- that's, I think the big, I think the big one before, right before that, that book was, uh, probably a networking thing where I was, I was out i came out to arizona from michigan to go get training to do atm networking and not atm teller machines but atm networking and there was a problem with a vendor on a fiber optic network the someone i think our it director called me and said hey you got to get back to michigan and i was planning on uh going somewhere you know like kind of vacationy on the weekend after that training and I didn't want to go back to Michigan and the problem as I understood it didn't seem like that big a deal. So I didn't go back. I did the vacationy thing. (laughs) I get back Monday morning and the superintendent berated me, like just tore me apart top to bottom, left to right inside and out. (laughs) And, uh, that, that sting 
lasted a long, long time. And that was probably the number one, that, that was the most selfish thing I'd ever done. Um, and that was certainly, I was, I was insubordinate, but by a long shot, I should have just gone. And I had traveled all the way to Arizona from Michigan, as far as my view was, I was going to do this vacation thing and then come back Monday because nobody was going to be around Saturday or Sunday anyway, was my thought. Mm -hmm but it was a big enough emergency and I did not take it seriously enough. And um, Wait, that was the most selfish thing you'd ever done up to that No, point? no, no. That wasn't the most selfish. That was just the most impactful okay. selfish thing. <laughs> done. That almost cost me my job. <laughs> I don't think I've ever given the details of that story. And, and the superintendent was like this Italian mafia looking guy. He always had the nice, you know, beautiful gray pinstripe suits and everything and, and not quite the, the accent that the movie's given, but he could have passed for <laughs> Like I thought I was going to wear cement shoes. <laughs> They're going to drop me off the bridge in the St. Clair River. <laughs> but that was a jerk move on my part. And it was, and that was a major version of a lot of minor things I had done up to that point. And that's why the, that's why the seven habits was so impactful. Cause that sting was still fresh and it, it, it was, it was a, that was a big deal to me. In, um, when Claire was over here, we were talking about the welcome slap in the face you know, the, the slap in the face that you need that when you are humble enough to receive it, it can teach you a lifelong lesson. It's not just the slap on the wrist, you know, like, oh, okay, I won't do this Oops. that way, right? Oops, mistake. This was like, you are not being who you, who you promised to be. Right. And I think that's really important to learn early in your career and I don't think enough people seek it out because like Matt said, you're, you're trying to impress, you're trying to be really good at what you do. Who wants a slap in the face, right? But the slaps in the face are the things that teach us the most. It's not the ATM networking. It's the lesson you learn when the superintendent berates you, right? Cause it has nothing to do with your skills and everything to do with your judgment Yep. And the decision, the poor decision that you made. Yep. And I can think of a few different ways where I remember like questioning, is this really as important as my boss says it is? <laughs> yeah, that's, <laughs> that's it. And, and, and that, I mean, that, uh, I talk about that sting. That was little, that thing. I remember 20 years later being you know, the, still in, in situations, minor versions of situations where, um, it, it, that is actually the thing that drives me to follow through now because mm -hmm. like I was an ass, I was a pompous little, you know, you know, ass for doing that, you mm -hmm. know, and I'm like, and I knew better, but I was reasoning away, you know, the, the, the actual truth of the matter. He wanted me back there. They needed me back there, even though I felt like I wasn't gonna be able to do anything about it for the two days of that weekend. So eh, I'm just going to stay in Arizona. <laughs> It's cluelessness. It you know? is complete cluelessness. I see my kids, they do this all the time. Like, uh, they'll see something in a movie and they're like, oh, the director left this out. It's like, actually, there's a reason that was done. You know, like my kids are trying to figure out how they can outsmart the movie or, you know, point out things in real life that clearly other people missed. You know, right. <laughs> the adults with decades of life experience Oh, well, you forgot to do that. Oh, did I? Really? <laughs> I was saying to Sarah, um, my wife, this weekend, wouldn't it be incredible if we were as smart as our kids? 
(laughs) (laughs) And it reminds me of that Mark Twain quote, you know, when I was a kid, my parents barely knew anything. And it amazes me how much they've learned since I've grown up. (laughs) 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 But that's us in our early careers, you know? So your comment, <laughs> your comment about the, it's actually the behavior, not the, the skill set. Um, I think it's a, it's a valuable lesson to learn, but it took me years, <laughs> it took me years, even after that first initial uh, failing, um, as I became, um, as I went up the corporate ladder, uh, I became more bitter and um, colder and more closed off at work and one of the times it came to a head was when we had a switch of senior management uh, at a deco and i was on the leadership management team first meeting and they the new vp wanted to be personal wanted to share things i didn't have pictures of anybody or anything. I didn't talk about my personal life at all. I separated them 100%. And I remember the other people on my team, my peers, wanting to draw me into this. And I'm just thinking, this is bullshit. I am not getting involved in my personal life. So when it came around to me and they were like, oh, what are you going to do over the holidays? Uh, or what is what what has happened in the last couple of weeks that's really interesting in your personal life? And I actually said in the meeting, um, I just found out I think my dog's going to have cancer. <laughs> and the eyes just stared at me. And I I thought that was me saying, I'm going to be who I am at work and you can't change me. There's You don't need to know anything about me. I do my job. Rather than now I can look back on this <laughs> 15, 20 years ago and realize, God, what an ass. <laughs> Holy cow. Why Why would you be like that? Why right. would you be so obstinate? What, in so change. why were you like that? What were you thinking at that time? Like, other than I'm not going to share anything, like it, it, it wasn't a moment. Correct. It was not a moment. It was just a, <laughs> it was a an example. attitude. Yeah. yeah. Over. So the behavior at work, I think it, I can psychoanalyze it <laughs> in that as you, as you increase stature in the corporate world, um, people get more protective and they get more closed off because they make more money and they want to protect that money. So, and there's always somebody out to get their job. It's all, it's all about competition. It's not about, and that's what the rat race actually describes is that you're trying to be on top and the most influence you can have on others, um, politically is where you're going to be success. And that's what your success is. Um, not particularly how you lift other people up or how many people are promoted that work for you. Some of the people that you have working for you, you don't want them to be promoted because then they might take your job. So there's a lot of pieces like that, that I became more and more closed off and bitter and angry. And there's personal shit, of course, as everybody has. Um, But I actually had to leave that role and leave that company in order for some um, to actually have it come to a head, to, personally have it come to a a crashing a crashing fall um and it took years for me to actually look back on that situation and think i was an ass because i was still obstinate about you can't make me be personal you can't make me open up to you i'm here to do a job that you pay me for so um unfortunately i wish i would have been slapped in the face a few more times i guess do you think it was a rebellion against 
sharing with your corporate overlords? Or do you think it was just a stubborn attitude to not be authentic? Like, it was, I'm either going to not, was it like, I'm not going to be authentic at work because that's not appropriate, or I'm not going to be authentic with these people, or is it like my career path? Like, what? what's your motivation to be the jerk? So the motivation now that I've um, talked about this with a lot of people and, and received some assistance on what makes a person behave the way they are, um, my father was successful in the corporate world and he was the same person at home that he was at work. Mm. Um, and he managed his family. So, and there, he didn't talk about work when he was home and I don't know what he was like at work about, but I did see because I, I would work in the factory, um, where he worked during the summers in college and I would see the fear in people as he walked out just to say hi to me or just walk through. And the people were just immediately at their desks doing their job or, uh, hello, sir. It was, I liked that fear. I liked that because I saw it as respect, not as, as fear. Um, so I thought that's, that's the way to be successful right there. I can be, um, um, work-related successful <laughs> and that would make me happy mm. and that would make my life good because with that comes money and i think it's uh it was just too far ingrained uh in me that um there was a certain way to be as opposed to there's so much more to life there's mm -hmm. so much more to that uh, if i didn't have relationships at work i wouldn't be sitting here with you two having this conversation right yeah so there's so much more outside of that that for me, it only took experience and, and decades of slaps mm -hmm. to get, unfortunately. There's an SNL sketch called Evil Boss with Will Ferrell. And uh, Pierce Brosnan is the guest. And he's sitting there, Pierce Brosnan, sitting there at a desk. Will Ferrell's behind the desk. And Will Ferrell says, uh, we are so excited to have you start on Monday. I think you're going to be awesome in this job. And... Uh, great interview you know like talking the guy up and then this woman comes in and she interrupts the conversation and says uh you know to will ferrell here are those reports that i was that you asked me to give you and he stands up and he screams <laughs> he screams at her <laughs> he's like why would you interrupt me i'm in the middle of a conversation these reports are crap i don't want them look at this look at you know like screaming at, at her and then he throws the folder back at her and he sits back down and says so anyway what, what were we talking <laughs> oh yes it's gonna be great when you start on monday <laughs> I, had a, I had a team in an office that, <laughs> that reminds me of me unfortunately i had a team in an office um and there was probably six or seven people on the team. And uh, she reported to someone who reported to me. And she um, sneezed really loudly. Like, you know, those exaggerated, ah, chew. And I got pissed. And I, pull, and I pulled her from her desk. I didn't touch her, of course, but I pulled her from her desk. And in the middle of all these people, I said, I'm trying to run in a professional environment. Do you think that's professional? And I can just, and she's probably 25 and I can still see, sneeze. yeah, over a sneeze. Oh, you must, that was not a welcome nor a good slap in the face. <laughs> no. Oh my goodness. Yeah. 
school. Yeah. <laughs> Have you talked to her? No, no. <laughs> no. That was that was early 2000s. But I think of situations like that where it's just unbelievably... Uh, it's not even inappropriate. It's just... It, it's destructive. It is. Yeah. It's totally yeah. destructive. And we can do that as a manager or we can do that as an individual contributor. I think it's... Uh, I mean, I'm grateful for those moments of authenticity because clearly that person has a problem. <laughs> you know, like, I'm glad when I observe that. Unfortunately, my tendency when people get angry is to laugh. I just think anger is the funniest thing. And <laughs> Which just exacerbates oh, the it's not good. usually. It is not good. <laughs> I've, fire. I've had a couple people get angry at work and... I've laughed, and they didn't appreciate it. Yeah, I and, bet. You know, well, why are you so laughing? It's so ridiculous. <laughs> it's such a waste of energy. That's work, how I see it. At work. That yeah. floors me. Right. There was a woman driving a car, and, and we were in a parking lot, and I needed to get around her, but she was pulled way, like way too far into the middle of the... It was like a one-road parking lot, you know, single piece of asphalt. And I couldn't get by her. And I just waited and she like moved her car a little bit and I couldn't, you know, you try getting around then you realize you can't. And then I see her like flailing her arms and <laughs> screaming like, and I, was, I just started laughing and my wife is like, what is the matter with you? Do not laugh. Don't let them see you laughing, you know? And I, that's how it's been my whole life. When people get really angry, I just start laughing. But do you know what the, what the drive is behind it? Is it just... I think it, it's I just see it as totally ridiculous you know like yeah. at, in the workplace why would you get so angry yeah. you know like your skin is not in the game 99% of the time as an employee unless you're like part owner and even then a good owner will say well what how do we fix this or okay so we lost that one how do we win the next one instead of just screaming like scre <laughs> what does screaming do at, for anyone it does nothing now that you've had 20 years to look back at that you're probably going i should have said here susie here's an allergy pill <laughs> and a tissue <laughs> can you imagine we could come up with a list of a hundred things that be better better than how i yes. managed that situation in hindsight yeah because it, yeah. it is it's absolutely ridiculous and it's yeah. a waste of time it's a waste of time and it's destructive um and i think that if people understand what they're doing is not as important as the people around them. I'm sorry, I'm still laughing yeah. at the idea. Someone's sneezing at you. <laughs> I'm trying to run a professional this, environment. You're talking about Matt. That poor woman. <laughs> that's the part that's killing me. Jeez. <laughs> oh, anyway, sorry, sorry to interrupt. <laughs> I love it. Do, do, you, um, do you have any advice for people who might be screamers who happen to be listening to this? I can tell you Andy probably has more advice because he he has a better way, I believe, of connecting with folks um, and removing, you know, there's that time between the actual situation that happens and when you react. And that breath, that that deep breath and the, the period of time that can separate those two are something he talks to folks about, which really helps because that really can i believe really fix a lot of those things yeah. i was having a conversation at work recently with someone who was angry and rather than 
respond. And you know, the, the, you get all the training about, okay, you talk lower and you talk softer. And then it's just condescending. Then mm-hmm. you're just a parent. Mm-hmm. Um, but I was in my mind thinking, what would Andy do? How would he, how would he, how would he manage this situation to help them just stop and breathe for a minute without being condescending? Because they don't see Andy that way. They see him as um, knowledgeable and wise. And a clown at the same <laughs> time, which is. So why don't you talk about that for a minute? Well, yeah, that, that's the, um, that's the quote that's in the back. Actually just did research on this yesterday because I wanted to leave it on a comment in LinkedIn and I didn't want to attribute it incorrectly. Uh, the first time I heard the quote, so the quote is, um, I'm going to butcher it, but it's close enough. Um, between stimulus and response is a space in that space lies, you know, our, our choice. Um, and those choices are, are freedom and, and, you know, success, you know, basically that's what it is. But I use that over and over again, just the, the stimulus and response part you have, you have an opportunity and a choice and you are in charge of managing the amount of time between when somebody says or does something or something happens that sets you off or whatever it does and the time, you know, that you respond to it and, and you decide what to do when, when somebody barks at you for whatever reason, sneezing, knocking over a table, whatever, uh, it's it the ideal is that you get used to understanding what it feels like to they call it an amygdala hijack when Mm -hmm. when you go into fight flight or freeze mode your your prefrontal cortex and your smart part of your brain your thinking brain shuts off and your amygdala is like let's fight them let's run or let's just stop and hope they don't see us (laughs) you know and and that uh that response is the impression you know, that, that people see if, if it's super short and emotionally driven and not driven by reason or logic, uh, you, a lot of times you end up saying you're sorry, <laughs> you mm-hmm. know, and, and that's not ideal. Uh, and it, it's, it's very, very common, uh, email. I don't, I think email and Slack and all those things are a terrible way to communicate. That's not face to face. You miss the tone, you miss the, the nonverbals, all those things. But, uh, the cool thing about email and Slack is that you can stop. It's easy to stop, step back, think about it, um, and come back to it later when you've had time to breathe and consider. In the moment when you're having a discussion with someone, uh, the, the, the real trick is to learn when, like for me, when somebody says something, my heart starts, starts to race faster than it normally does, my cheeks get warm, my ears get warm, and I recognize I'm having a, an emotional reaction to something. So I stop, I breathe. Hopefully they're still talking because it's easier to do, you know, mm-hmm. and then, and then I start to discuss and formulate the answer, but literally like two deep breaths yeah. can flood your brain with oxygen and you can start thinking before you respond. Um, it's, it's a comp, a very, very common theme in chats with people because they're, they, they talk about, I, you know, I was working with someone, this they said something or they barked at me or whatever it was. And I wanted, I wanted to scream. And I said, did you No, I, I couldn't because I, you know, I just, I was too wound up. I'm like, that's good. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you backed away. Or if somebody asks you something that, you know, sets you off, it's okay to say, let me, let me put this on pause and let's come back to this either next time or after I've had a chance to think about it. Um, it saved my butt a lot 
over the past few years. You know, just, just remembering to breathe and stop. I don't have to answer right now. I don't have to respond. Um, but there have been a couple moments <laughs> where I've, a Slack message comes over and I, I feel compelled to respond. I stop thinking about what I should be doing and I respond. And then I'm like, oh, God, you just got pulled into this thing. Why mm-hmm. did I do that? Yeah, but that's a, that's a super common thing. Cool. Well, I think that's a good note to end on. Um, maybe we'll do another one and uh, we can talk a bit more about getting good at your work. Let's. Cool. See you in the next one. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Clueless at the Work podcast. You can pick up a copy of the book on Amazon, Barnes and Noble, and at cluelessatthework.com, where you'll also find book excerpts, podcast transcriptions, and more related content. Please consider subscribing to the podcast and check out our previous episodes as we walk through the book content together.